This is Southern Arch Heretic, Shifting the Burden, continuing with the proof and discussing the Christological argument. Today we talk about the miracles of Jesus, the virgin birth, and the childhood of Jesus. I'm Kit Rogers, and I have some questions. Welcome back to my Shifting the Burden series, where the proof for the existence of God is placed into a criminal trial setting, and the burden is on the believer to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The non-believer is presumed correct in our exercise. How does the evidence hold up? Let's explore it. The Christological Argument The Miracles of Jesus Oftentimes, reference is made to the miracles allegedly performed by Jesus as proof of his divinity and thereby proof of God's existence. I hate to beat a dead horse, but obviously the reliability of the sources from which these miracle stories derive is terrible. Besides, even somewhat reliable accounts from witnesses to a magic performance must be viewed with skepticism if the story includes extraordinary claims, such as actual magic, as in the suspension of the natural order, or divine intervention. I saw David Copperfield perform at the Strand Theater in Shreveport, Louisiana, when I was maybe 16 or 17 years old. It was impressive. He made himself disappear while astride a motorcycle in a cage raised 30 feet above the stage and in his place appeared a live tiger. He then instantly reappeared standing next to me on the armrest of the seat in the middle of the 15th row. I didn't notice him there until the spotlight struck me, literally blinded by a bright light. And my arm was on the armrest. But I still didn't leave the theater believing him to be divine. Even in the 1980s, we possessed an understanding of illusion that may have escaped those living in the first few centuries A.D. That being said, to properly judge the reliability and to be fair to the believers, let's take a stroll through the four New Testament Gospels and explore the miracles therein. I have counted the miracles in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and understand that there can be a difference in opinion as to total number, especially depending upon the version of the New Testament you're referencing. I've also searched for lists compiled by others online and found differing opinions as well. I find a total of 42 different miracles, although not all referenced in any particular gospel. I have encountered several other lists that agree on the 42 different miracles, so I'm going to use that number. If we're to judge the reliability of these miracle accounts, even utilizing the low level of scrutiny we employed while investigating the resurrection stories, we must start with the base qualification that the miracle must appear in all four New Testament Gospels. 
How many of the 42 miracles appear in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Only two. And that is if we include the resurrection as one of those two. The singular miracle that is in all four Gospels that Jesus performed while he was still alive is the feeding of the 5,000. This story is similar in all four Gospels and includes the important numbers. Five loaves and two fish feed 5,000 people with 12 baskets of leftovers. I mean, it's just simple math, really. There are some differences in the accounts, but generally, they're similar enough to presume they all come from a similar source. In this case, most likely, the Gospel of Mark. Since it's well accepted that writers of the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew used Mark as a source, we should expect to see quite a bit of crossover between these three Gospels. And we do. I count 14 miracles that are included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but absent from John. There's one miracle that's in Matthew, Mark, and John, but missing in Luke. It's when Jesus walks on the water. One of the most famous miracles of all. Come on, Luke. What gives? The writer of Luke had Mark and Q and possibly Matthew as sources and decided to leave it out. I guess just another, you know, walking on the water story. Not that important. Mark and Luke have the same number of magic tricks, but not all the same ones. I count 27 in Matthew, 23 in Mark, 23 in Luke, and 8 in John. Why the disparity? I understand that not every miracle would have been witnessed by the same group of people, but I thought this was the revealed word of God. The writers of these Gospels didn't witness any of these miracles. Why not just write about the same ones found in your sources? Unless there were plenty of other stories floating around, or perhaps an agenda to reach a specific audience. But that sounds awfully human, doesn't it? Perhaps divine inspiration isn't perfect. I understand that. Perhaps revealed knowledge can be garbled. Maybe. Perhaps somebody just wanted to deify a person so as to raise their profile for homage and to catalyze the expansion of a particular cult of personality. It was common practice to deify great figures in history, from emperors to great warriors and philosophers. We'll touch on it when we discuss another one of Jesus' divine feats. Of course, I'm referring to apparently having no Y chromosome as his mother was a virgin, and so had received no sperm. You know, where the Y comes from. Just kidding. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm sure God included it when he impregnated her.
The Virgin Birth and Childhood of Jesus Any divinity argument for Jesus must include the virgin birth. We have a holiday season in the U.S. that begins sometime in the fall and lasts through December to celebrate the virgin birth of Jesus. We cut down trees and bring them into our homes. We hang stockings, snowflakes, mistletoe, garland. We decorate with Santas, elves, and reindeer. Nativity scenes are everywhere with Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus in a manger, farm animals, shepherds, and wise men. Some towns and churches have giant, life-sized, or larger nativity scenes. We hang lights indoors and outdoors. We also hang lights along with other fire hazards directly onto the dying organic arboreal Santa magnet that we've proudly displayed in our living room. This evergreen gift umbrella is made of material that's so flammable that some folks burn it as a heat and cooking source. But surely baby Jesus wouldn't let us burn to death. Christmas Eve and Christmas Day are the two leading days of the year for house fires, according to the National Fire Protection Agency. Oh well, totally worth it to show baby Jesus just how much his teachings of humility and ascetic lifestyle reached us. An ascetic lifestyle, for those who don't know, is one of abstention from all forms of indulgence, usually for religious reasons. Jesus, in the New Testament Gospels, clearly tells his followers to give up their wealth and clothing and family and everything else. Irony is evidently not taught in churches. People spend money and energy on hideous, oversized, air-filled yard ornaments in the shape of cartoon characters wearing Christmas attire, or a snowman, or Santa in his sleigh. We go to office parties, we participate in family gatherings, we get together with friends, and at each stop we find cookies and candy, cakes and pies, chips and dips, fruits and nuts, meats and cheeses, family specialty dishes, beer, wine, mixed drinks, eggnog, cider, and so much Chex Mix. My God, the Chex Mix. We spend more money and splurge ourselves into gluttonous blobs by consuming as much crap as we can in an almost violent, orgiastic cacophony of jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Thank you, baby Jesus, and happy birthday! Blessed are the poor, and so on and so forth. We wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. Amen, hallelujah, pass the green bean casserole, and where the hell is my gift? We all know the nativity story, or at least most of us probably know some portions of it. Joseph and Mary are turned away from the inn in Bethlehem, having traveled there for a census that required everyone to return to the town of their heritage, 
I must stop here just to point out how stupid this is. Why would a census require people to travel to their family's ancestral home? It's ridiculous. It would defeat the purpose of any census. Anyway, since Joseph is descended from David, Bethlehem is where they had to go. Jesus was born in a stable and placed in a manger, surrounded by farm animals. He was visited by the shepherds and then by the three wise men. That's the story I know. I even played Joseph in our kindergarten Christmas nativity pageant. I have the pictures to prove it. To top it off, I played the part of baby Jesus as an infant, and again as a preteen at the Feast of St. Joseph's altar celebration organized by my Meemaw, who was head of the ladies' auxiliary at the Old Sons of Italy Club. I was very versatile as a child Jesus actor. It's the story I grew up with, and I would bet that it is similar to the story that you grew up with if you were raised Christian. That story, by the way, is not in the Bible. It is a summarized and sanitized amalgam of accounts. It includes cherry-picked details from two different Gospels and leaves out others. What do the Gospels actually say? The story of Jesus' birth only appears in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. It's absent from Mark and John. Seems like the kind of truth you might want to include. Unless, of course, it was just a writer's way of adding wonder to the story of his movement symbol by attaching a common ingredient in hero mythology to Jesus' birth story long after the fact. Virgin birth, or sometimes just a god as the baby daddy, Stories were very common, and we will discuss some after we look at the Gospels. People at the time had no idea about sperm and eggs and conception. I suspect stories of miraculous pregnancies were commonplace, if for no other reason than to save the neck of a young lover from a pissed-off father who already had plans for his knocked-up daughter's betrothal. If Zeus or Jupiter or Yahweh put that bun in the oven, what's an angry dad to do? This, of course, is based upon the presumption that young people were attracted to each other and enjoyed sex even in the first century A.D. I'm not suggesting that Mary made it up. There's no proof Mary ever said a damn thing about it. I still think my suspicion is valid. I am suggesting that somebody made it up. Most likely the writers of these Gospels are the groups that told the stories upon which these writers based their Gospels. Let's look at the differences between Matthew and Luke. In Matthew, the writer tells the story of the visiting wise men, who were supposed to report back to Herod when they found the baby, but instead decided to bring him gifts. You know, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, and worship him. Herod was incensed, you see what I did there, and ordered the massacre of all male children two years old and under in and around Bethlehem. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, upon counsel of an angel, split for Egypt and didn't return until Herod died. This gospel has no census. It has no shepherds. It has no inn lacking vacancy. It has no presentation at the temple. Evidently, Joseph and Mary lived in Bethlehem, so no need to travel from Nazareth. 
In Luke, we have the story of Mary and her cousin Elizabeth, which of course conveniently ties Jesus to John the Baptist, who more than likely was a more well-known preacher at the time. And he ties them together as cousins. We have a census that required Joseph and family to go to Bethlehem from Nazareth, where they lived. We have the visitation of the baby Jesus by the shepherds, who were informed by an angel so that they could become early fans, you know, before Jesus sold out and became famous. We have the presentation at the temple. There's nothing about three wise men, or infanticide, or a flight to Egypt. Why such different stories? Well, because each writer knew his audience, and those audiences were different. Matthew emphasizes the Jewish Jesus. Luke emphasizes the Hellenistic demigod Jesus for a Gentile audience. There is absolutely no evidence of any of the claims asserted by either of these writers. Historically, the stuff about the census and the infanticide is provably false. I mentioned other virgin birth stories. These narratives were very common during the era of the gospel writers and had been for centuries and would be for centuries to follow. Great men, rulers, and powerful leaders often had stories regarding their origin from godly intercessory intercourse. Even if their mothers weren't all virgins, the sluts. Their stories usually involve the hero being conceived with no human male involvement. There are miraculous birth stories that exist for Plato, Alexander the Great, Egyptian pharaohs, Greek and Roman leaders. They were all deified and had birth stories revealing their divinity. Jesus' virgin birth story is just not that special as far as uniqueness goes and its reliability factor as evidence, is absolute zero. What else do we know about Jesus' childhood? The New Testament Gospels tell us very little. There is a story in Luke wherein Joseph and Mary return to Nazareth after their flight to Egypt and notice that 12-year-old Jesus is missing. They find him in the temple discussing scripture with teachers there. He scolds his parents, the little shit, as if they should have known he would be, quote unquote, in his father's house. That's it. The only story in the New Testament Gospels about Jesus as a child. Mark does mention that Jesus worked alongside Joseph as a carpenter or laborer, some say skilled, depending on translation. Otherwise, we know nothing about Jesus until, as an adult, he comes into contact, this time outside the womb, with John the Baptist. There are other stories related to the childhood of Jesus. 
Most of these are made up centuries later, and so I'm not going to waste my time addressing them. However, there is one writing known as the Infancy Gospel of Thomas that includes stories of Jesus as a child, including the temple story at the age of 12 that is included in Luke. This gospel is one of the earliest writings we have related to the child Jesus. It's dated around 125 AD. If we're considering the gospels included in the New Testament, we should take a look at how other early Christians recorded stories of Jesus' childhood, especially if they're generally from the same time period as the other gospels. The infancy gospel of Thomas was translated into numerous languages due to its popularity in the early years of Christianity. The infancy gospel of Thomas is interesting because it shows the clear influence of the Gentile or Hellenistic concept of a demigod or divine man on a Christian description of Jesus. It seems like an honest attempt to portray an all-powerful child. Jesus is immature, petty, vengeful, and murderous, but innocently so, I'm sure. I mean, what do you expect? Give a God-child extraordinary power and knowledge and turn him loose on the earth. What could possibly go wrong? I don't want you to have the wrong idea. Joseph did his very best to curtail the little God monster. This gospel explains how Joseph had a good talk with Jesus so that he could use his fatherly authority to convince his, I guess, adopted son to use his power to bless and not curse. They were asked to leave by the villagers because Jesus was a menace. I'm going to include a segment of the gospel. I assume it may be the first time some of you have ever heard it, or maybe have even heard of it. Again, these are stories included in a gospel that existed around the same time as the New Testament gospels. From the Infancy Gospel of Thomas When this child Jesus was five years old, he was playing at the ford of a stream. He made pools of the rushing water and made it immediately pure. He ordered this by word alone. He made soft clay and modeled 12 sparrows from it. It was the Sabbath when he did this. There were many other children playing with him. A certain Jew saw what Jesus did while playing on the Sabbath. He immediately went and announced to his father Joseph, See, your child is at the stream and has taken clay and modeled twelve birds. He has profaned the Sabbath. Joseph came to the place and seeing what Jesus did, he cried out, Why do you do on the Sabbath what is not lawful to do? Jesus clapped his hands and cried to the sparrows, Be gone! And the sparrows flew off chirping. The Jews saw this and were amazed. They went away and described to their leaders what they had seen Jesus do. The son of Annas, the scribe, was standing there with Joseph. He took a branch of a willow and scattered the water which Jesus had arranged. Jesus saw what he did and became angry and said to him, You unrighteous, impious ignoramus! What did the pools and the water do to harm you? Behold, you shall also wither as a tree, and you shall not bear leaves nor roots nor fruit. And immediately that child was all withered. Jesus left and went to the house of Joseph. 
The parents of the withered one bore him away, bemoaning his lost youth. They led him to Joseph and reproached him, What kind of child do you have who does such things? Once again he was going through the village, and a child who was running banged into his shoulder. Jesus was angered and said to him, You shall go no further on your way. And immediately the child fell down dead. Some people saw this and said, From whence was this child begotten? For his every word is an act accomplished. The parents of the dead boy went to Joseph and blamed him. Because you have such a boy, you cannot live with us in the village. Your alternative is to teach him to bless and not to curse, for he is killing our children. After this encounter, Joseph had a less than effective father and son come to future Jesus meeting with Jesus about their tenuous living situation. Jesus basically tells Joseph, nice try, and strikes blind the folks that accused him. It doesn't matter that he was guilty of the accusations. In fact, it isn't until he heals a child that fell to his death while he was playing with him that Jesus begins using his powers to bless and not curse. Jesus seemingly only heals that child because he's accused by other villagers of pushing him. He enjoys the positive attention and worship he receives from these acts, and so he continues performing them every chance he gets, seemingly for the adulation, according to this gospel. Honestly, it seems more in line with how an all-powerful human child might act. The Child and the Sage You say, O sage, when weather-checked, I have been favored so with cloudly skies I must expect this dash of rain or snow. Since health has been my lot, you say, so many months of late, I must not chafe that one short day of sickness mars my state. You say such bliss has been my share from love's unbroken smile, it is but reason I should bear across there in a while. And thus you do not count upon continuance of joy, but when at ease expect anon a burden of annoy. But sage this earth, why not a place where no reprisals reign, where never a spell of pleasantness makes reasonable a pain? Thomas Hardy, December 21st, 1908 why aren't these stories in the New Testament? Why isn't this gospel that fills in some gaps regarding the child Jesus prior to the age of 12, or after the age of 12 for that matter, included in the canon? I mean, the story is just as ridiculous as the others when it comes down to it, but it definitely suggests that Jesus wasn't always viewed as a perfect God-man or a God-boy without sin or an infallible, all-knowing God-like human. If you consider anything from the New Testament in deliberation, whether intentionally or subconsciously, even though you have been instructed to ignore it, please remember that there are other texts, such as this one, that are just as reliable, meaning not reliable at all, as any found in the New Testament pursuant to the law, rules, and most importantly, 
general common sense. Next time we'll dig into Jesus' alleged claims of divinity and his so-called wisdom. Until then, love you, mean it.